0: Hello, everybody. This is Cortland from ndhackers.com, where I talk to the founders of profitable internet businesses. In each episode, I try to get a sense of how the founder got started with their business and with entrepreneurship in general. And the goal is to learn what goes on behind the scenes so that the rest of us can learn to build our own successful companies. Today, I'm talking to Spencer Skates. Spencer is a CEO and co-founder of a San Francisco based startup called Amplitude. Thanks for coming on the show, Spencer. Absolutely, Cortland. Super, super excited to talk to you in the
1: audience. You know, it's funny, I was I wish indie hackers had been around uh, when we first started. That was like seven years ago where I first got into startups, and I spent a huge amount of time just reading the stories of early stage uh, companies and how they got started and all of that. Um, So definitely super excited to kind of pass along what I've learned since then.
0: Yeah, I'm super excited to have you. I think Amplitude is an awesome company. The way that I would describe it is that it's an analytics tool that you plug into your website or your app and it will tell you exactly how your users are behaving so that you can make better decisions and build a better product. Is that an accurate description? That's right on point. Yeah, we think of ourselves, I think just stepping back for a second, you
1: know, I think a lot of people hear the word analytics and there's like hundreds of analytics companies that all do pretty similar sounding things like hey, we're going to help you make better decisions and you know, we're the most scalable and the easiest to use UI and we let you ask the most in-depth questions, but our focus is a very unique one which is we focus on the product. Uh, We focused on helping you understand how your users are interacting with your product so that you can build a better product. So being able to say, okay, well, let me understand the level of engagement people have. And then more importantly, let me understand what's behind that. So why people are engaging or not engaging with the product, um, how the usage of different features impact things like conversion or long-term retention. um, So that ultimately you can take
0: that and use that, to understand how to improve your product and to ultimately build a better one. Yeah, I would love to deep dive into this a little bit later on because I think there's a lot of confusion around when exactly people should be adopting these analytics tools and how they can get the most out of them and get the right data for their companies. So it's just a subject that I'd really love to pick your brain on.
1: No, absolutely. You know, it's it's interesting. I think you know it's it's definitely
0: it's definitely not something that makes
1: sense in every use case, and there's definitely a time and a place for it. I'm so happy to talk about it.
0: Can you give us a sense of how big you guys are as a company, or your revenue, or how many people are using Amplitude? We have tens of thousands of uh, products that send us data, Um, and
1: we have uh, hundreds of enterprise customers on the enterprise side. Uh, We've grown the company. Uh, We launched it four years ago. Since then, we've grown quite a bit. We have 100 folks that work here today. Um, We just raised our Series C of $30 million about uh, five or six months back. Uh, and now we're uh, you know, on a trajectory to keep up and continue that growth. So we've done, we've done pretty well over the last few years.
0: That's a tremendous amount of progress to make in, in just four years. One thing I really want to get into is how you became who you are today. Because today you're running this business with 100 employees, you're raising tens of millions of dollars from investors. How did you decide to become this kind of person? Was there a point in your life where you just said to yourself, hey, I can be a tech founder if I want to?
1: Yeah, I, well, one I really appreciate that question because I definitely think it's not one that enough people ask and talk about, um, and something that I spent a really long time thinking about before jumping in. Um, so it actually started back uh, when I was in school at MIT. One of the things I realized coming out is that you could decide to do almost anything in life, you know, not and not that that's going to be easy or you can do everything, but you know, hey, you can play whatever character you know you want to play. And so I spent a really long time thinking um, and trying to understand, well, what do I know about myself and what do I know about what's important for me to do? And not to get, you know, too much into the philosophical, but I I realized a few things uh, about myself. So one is just like, you know, I was, I've always been kind of motivated and ambitious and driven, um, but at the same time, I've always wanted to do that on my own terms. Um, And then the other big one was that, you know, I, I saw the people who were most successful in their life. And I wanted to understand common themes. You know, what was it that really successful athletes or entertainers or business people or researchers or, you know, anyone in life, uh, what was it that they had in common? And and the one thing that one, the one big thread that that stood out to me was that they all were in it to do it for something beyond themselves. And they, you know, really wanted to help other people. And so, you know, what my takeaway from that was, you know, I, I realized that, okay, well, hey, you know, I want to set up my life in a sim- similar way. And I saw a lot of people who were very unhappy with their careers and where they had gotten, you know, whether it's they had gotten into medicine or something else. And, you know, they had chosen it because, you know, they thought it was prestigious or they thought, you know, their parents wanted them to do it or, you know, they felt that they could make a lot of money. Whereas on the flip side, the people who were the happiest and most fulfilled and, and the most successful were doing it because, hey, you know, they wanted to help other people or they wanted to make the world a better place or they wanted to to serve others. And so that was just a really, really strong you know, thing that resonated with me when I was trying to understand you know what my role in, in life was. You know, I, I spent some time looking around and one of my takeaways was that the best way for me to, to create something that helps other people is is through building a company, and that was going to be the most impactful way that I could do that. Because if you look at who I was, well, you know, I was you know a new grad coming out of school. You know, I knew some coding. Um, I had seen other people take that path, and that was going to be the the most impactful way I could help others. I, I looked at a bunch of different industries at the time. I, lo- I was looked at consulting. I looked at finance. I actually spent a year in finance before coming in, out and starting a company. Um, you know, I looked at going to a big tech, tech company. I looked at going into academic research. And out of everything out there, I, I found that, like, hey, you know, starting a company is by far the highest leverage way to, to impact other people um, and being part of an early stage company. And so I ended up looking at, you know, a bunch of other folks at the time who had done that. So the founders of Dropbox were a few years ahead of me at, at MIT, you know, uh, Patrick at uh, Stripe Patrick and John at Stripe, you know, were from MIT, and so it was like there's a bunch of folks that, with you know, very very little experience or training, uh, kind of came out and made these massively impactful companies. And so I said, hey, you know, is this something I'm capable of doing? So I spent a long time reading lots of stories about uh, early stage startups. I read, you know, Jessica Livingston's Founders at Work, uh, you know, and a bunch of books like that, and. After about a year of research, I was like, you know what? Like, I think this is something I'm capable of doing, and I could, quite honestly, dedicate uh, my life to, you know, for sure, the next few years of my life, and you know, maybe if it, if that works out, the the longer term. So, for me, it was really about, okay, hey, how how do I make the biggest impact that I can? And the cool thing about starting a company is that, like, um, you know, as we scale, it's like if we're successful that's a really good thing for so many folks it's a good thing for all the the people that i get to work with um, you know it's a good thing for for me my co-founder it's a good thing for all the the customers that we help it's a good thing for our investors it's a good thing for um, you know the broader startup environment so it's like it's just a win on on
0: so many counts it's like yeah would i rather you know i wouldn't rather be doing anything else i'm so like that's such a great answer and it's funny because i bring a lot of people onto the show when i think one of the most common pieces of advice that I hear people say is, hey, you know, stop reading, stop thinking, just jump in and do it. And you, on the other hand, are a very analytical guy, and your approach was to spend a lot of time reading. In fact, you have a very dedicated and thoughtful, you know, sort of research path that you set out for yourself. What would be your advice for aspiring founders who might be completely inexperienced but trying to learn more? I mean, you mentioned reading Founders at Work by Jessica Livingston, but is there anything else you would read or, or things you would pay attention to?
1: Founders at Work was great. There's Startups Open Source, which is kind of uh, another, uh, the the next-gen version of it. I know a lot of the stuff that you have on Indie Hackers is great. Just being able to understand the really, really early-stage stories of as many startups as possible. I I definitely think, you know, if you want to start a company, go do it. Like, there are a lot of folks who spend tons of time just reading and talking about doing it, but don't actually make the leap. Um, And there's nothing, you know, that gets you more progress on starting. If you know... starting a company is what you want to do, then, then, then go do it. The thing, the piece of advice that I will give is that the, the place that I don't see people spend enough time is that just being really thoughtful around who they are and what they want to get out of life. And that's more life advice than startup advice in particular. And so that's something I wanted to make sure I've, I, I don't know, that's just my personality and who I am, but that's, that's always something I wanted to, to make sure. I actually, you know, one of the very influential books that I read before was, uh, I don't know if you've ever read Meditations by Marcus Aurelius, but you know a lot of a lot of what uh, his philosophy uh, has been resonated with me, uh, just about you know how to live a, a good life, and so I'm all for spending a really really long time being thoughtful about what it is you want to do and why. I think too many people will just jump to the next thing, you know, every year and only spend you know a week or a few weeks thinking about it without deeply reflecting on you know who they are and what their role is in life, and so. You think about how many years you you spend over the course of your career, right? You're, you're likely to work for like 30, 40, you know, in some cases, 50 years. And so that's a long time, you know, and not that your career is the only thing, but it is a big part of your, it will end up being a big part of your identity as a person. And so spending the time to be really thoughtful about that is, is I see a lot of folks who really don't spend enough time on that and end up kind of jumping from thing to thing and are continually unhappy because they don't, you know, they don't introspect at the, at the level that uh, I would for myself.
0: Exactly. And if you start from kind of what you want your life to be and and what you want to get out of life as a human being, then you're much less likely to later on find yourself in a situation where you're working on something that ends up conflicting with your goals and the kind of person that you want to be. Exactly. Yeah. You can be, you know, one of the things that was
1: cool that I realized, uh, is you can be, you know, you always watch movies, you know, you see movies or TV shows of these people who live crazy lives, whether, Uh, you know, as doctors or lawyers or in the military or, you know, business people or, you know, stars or whatever. And what I realized is you could literally choose to be any of them. You know, you're not going to get there on day one. (laughs) You know, it's going to take many, many years or decades in some cases to to get to the place you want, but you can choose to be any character you want. Um, And so being thoughtful about that is super important. There's actually a, a really cool anecdote that I, if you don't mind, I'd love to share. Go for it. So, one of the most inspiring stories to me when I was trying to figure out how to spend my life was I, I was trying to read about people who had impacted the world in a really big way. And there's this one name that really stuck with me. Is this guy named Norman Borlaug. Norman Borlaug, he was, he was the Nobel Peace Prize winner in 1970. And what he did was he was an agriculture expert um, and he started his career in the 50s and 60s. And what he wanted to do was he wanted to bring best practices around farming and how to grow crops to to the developing world. And at the time, the population growth was exploding. So we're at like, you know, three billion people or something like that, and adding a billion every decade or two. The the rate at which people would grow was really, really fast. But the problem was that if you looked at how much food was available to feed those people, it was actually limited you know, there was not enough farmland just in the entire world to feed everyone uh, and to feed the growing population. And so you kind of had this exponential growth curve of people, uh, but then you had this like, you know, limited food supply and it's like, okay, well, what's going to happen, you know? And there is a bunch of famous books written about, you know, this exact problem. One famous one is called Limits to Growth. And it just talked about how the future would be a really, really bleak one and how that we'd run out of resources and people, there'd be mass starvation Uh, and disease and famine and war. And, you know, the few people left would be fighting over what limited resources they have. Anyway, so that was, that was the kind of the prevailing thought at the time. And the only way to combat that was to, uh, you know, enact huge population controls. So, uh, you know, basically limiting people, how many kids they can have, you know, just really horrible, awful things. And what ended up happening, you know, as, as you know, today, everyone alive today, it's like, Hey, we have, you know, seven, you know, 8 billion people around. And, by and large, people are fed. There are definitely folks who still go hungry, but those are, are problems more of distribution than of just the total amount of food available. And the reason that we're able to sustain the population that we have is because of largely the efforts of this one guy, Norman Borlaug. So what he did was he went down in the late 50s, he went down to Mexico uh, to do a bunch of research on how to bring modern farming techniques, and he created this special strain of wheat that... Uh, ended up being uh, much higher yield, so it had a bunch of characteristics. It was disease resistant, it was high yield, and it had this other attribute called dwarfism, which is important for crops. And as a result, Mexico's wheat farming quadrupled over the course of a few years, and they went from a food importer; they would constantly have to import food from uh, the United States to feed their growing population, to a food exporter, and that was huge. You know, now it wasn't you know it wasn't a worry you know, food stability and production and being able to feed the growing population wasn't, wasn't a concern. And then a few years after that, he went to India. He did the exact same thing there, and India was even in worse shape than Mexico at the time. India had just gotten independence, um, and it had split with Pakistan. You know, you had this massive growing population with a super poor country, just the recipe for disaster in so many different ways, but he did the same thing, and as a result, India became self-sufficient in terms of uh, food growth, and you know, he kinda, it was like two and a half X In terms of the overall ability to produce food, and then you know after that he went to Pakistan, he went to Africa, he went to a few other places to create new strains of crops and bring modern farming techniques. And as a result, if you look at the the net impact of what he's done, it's super clear that you know he saved probably hundreds of millions of lives, if not you know a billion lives. Now for me, like that's like real impact. You know this guy saved. You know we talk about making a billion dollars here in Silicon Valley. You know what real impact is saving a billion lives. And so that story really stuck with me and resonated with me. And, and, you know, he got the Nobel Peace Prize in 1970, but, you know, not many folks understand the sort of impact he has to both lots, you know, hundreds of millions of people, but, you know, even more like our trajectory as like a human race. And it's like, whoa, that was, that was, you know, if I can have a tiny fraction of the impact that someone like that has had on the world, that would be incredible. Um, And so, you know, it was like, Hey, like, yeah, sign me up. Like I'll dedicate the rest of my life, you know, no question. And I will be totally confident in that. And, and, and that's really important because I think a lot of folks go through life and they end up, you know, realizing what they want is very different from what they're doing. And so being able to find something where you can say, Hey, let me dedicate my life to this without having any doubts about that or having any regrets about what you do is, is super important. And, uh, and a good way to find long-term success. And so, you know, when I look at what we're doing here at Amplitude, definitely not on the nowhere near on the scale of of an impact of someone like Norman Borlaug. But I think about my talents and what I'm good at, and it's like, well, what do I what do I know how to do? Well, I know how to build uh, and sell software. So let me do the most good as 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 we
0: can uh, through that. That's such an inspiring example, and also such a difficult person to compare yourself to when you're planning out your life. It's pretty rare, especially for people who haven't had any experience, to have a successful business. It's pretty rare to have a success right out of the gate, but the failures that you have early on can often teach you lessons at a deeper level than you would learn just by reading about what other people are doing. So in in that spirit, I'd love to get a sense of what were some of the first companies that you started before Amplitude and the projects that you worked on uh, that may have ultimately failed to take off?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So. You know, I didn't know anything, about. you know, I was like just a kid starting out of college. And so I didn't know anything about anything about starting companies. And it was like, okay, well, you know, how do we even pick something that's worthwhile to work on? And so I ended up, um, you know, uh, convincing. So I, I convinced my co-founder, Curtis, uh, who was a really close friend of mine from MIT to leave his job at Google. And we said, okay, well, what, what should we work on? We worked on a bunch of different projects, but one of the first real ones to, to get traction was this one called Sonolite. Sonolite Text by Voice. And it was a uh, voice recognition application uh, that helped you send and receive text messages by talking to your phone. And the idea was that this was a safe way that you could interact with your phone while driving because you didn't need to press any buttons or you know look at your screen. You could just have a conversation with your phone and and send and receive text messages. We launched actually right around the same time as Siri, which was a really good thing for us because a lot of people were looking for for a similar uh, type of experience on Android. Um, and so that was that was the very very first idea that we worked on. We didn't know anything about voice recognition. We didn't know anything about mobile or mobile apps. You know, we didn't know anything if this would be a good bet, a bad bet. You know, anything in between. Um, we were just like, hey, you know, this doesn't exist. Uh, we think we can build it, and it'll you know improve it'll help some people. So let's, let's do that and take it from there. So we started that in, that was in summer of 2011. So that was, yeah, that was like a little, it's six and a half years ago from now. We launched the product and it was awesome. We got, you know, thousands of downloads. We're really excited. We ended up getting into Y Combinator as a result of that. And we were in the winter 2012 batch and Coming out of Y Combinator, we had this really cool demo day presentation. It was like a really slick demo day presentation where we'd show off the technology and I'd take my phone. I would be like a magician doing a trick to the audience. So I'd take my phone and I'd show it to the audience and then I'd put it it in my jacket pocket and then I'd be like, look, I'm talking to my phone and having a conversation with it without touching it at all whoa, this is the coolest thing ever. Like, you know, and this was before Amazon Alexa and Google Home and all that stuff. And so that was like a, it was a pretty cool demo. And the entire room was like, whoa, this is so cool. And Curtis and I felt on top of the world. And we were really, really jazzed about like, hey, you know, like we created, we did this really cool demo and we have this really cool piece of technology. And um, on top of that, like we had the most mentions um, the most press mentions coming out of demo day out of any, of any startup in that batch, you know, out of 60 startups. And there were some really good companies in that batch. Um, and so we were like, Whoa, this is awesome. Like, you know, we're the, we're the best. Uh, you know, I just like, we fulfilled our dream of starting a company. Like, uh, you know, it. nothing can go wrong. Yeah, exactly. We did it. Uh, now what, what happened is, you know, I'm not, I'm still not doing Light today. So we, <laughs> you know, it looks like things ended up going out in a very different direction coming out of demo days. So we had uh, a lot of press, which led to even more downloads and more users. But what happened really quickly is users would not stick around in the product. Uh, They would use it. It'd be a cool tech demo, you know, it'd be a fun piece of technology, but they would not integrate it into their day-to-day lives. You know, very, very few people would actually continue to engage with the app for like more than a month. As a result, After all that press and and all that users and you know the our user base actually started shrinking, and I you know we looked at this and we were like in panel we're like oh my god what's happening like I thought like you know we're on this exponential curve and like you know it's no longer happening like what's going on here and so because we were engineers we spent a lot of time digging into the data and we really wanted to understand okay why what was going on. And we ended up spending about half our engineering effort because we were so, you know, yeah, we were facing, like, after coming off this big high from demo day, we were facing, like, hey, the, the death of the company in some sense because, yeah, users just wouldn't stick around. And, like, I was like, oh, man, like, you know, might be a failure. Like, I had spent a year before this building startups up as this big thing in my head, and I thought it was going to be this really, really successful thing. You know, my, my parents are worried that like, you know, hey, I gave up a good job in finance and all my friends are doing really cool jobs and, at their companies <laughs> and getting paid a lot of money and I'm not getting paid anything. And, you know, I don't even have anything to show for it after a year working on Sonalite And I was just in this really, yeah, really hard place where it's like, you know, I, yeah, I just don't know if like, yeah, it's kind of questioning, okay, what my purpose is. Um, and like, if this thing is for me. Anyway, so so that was kind of going on, and we ended up doing this, uh, trying to understand, okay, well, why was it that users were not retaining? And so we ended up, unfortunately, all the tools on the market at the time wouldn't do this out of the box for you, and so you had to spend, uh, you had to, you had, we had to kind of build their own systems to do that, and we ended up finding out that the best predictor of long-term, whether you'd retain in the app or not long-term, was... Whether the voice recognition actually worked, and as it turns out, the voice recognition did not work that well. Um, so a good number of, like most users, actually would have a number of failed uh, recognition attempts within the application, um, or they, you know, accumulate a, a good number of failures over time. And so after that happened, after you got enough failures, you wouldn't actually. Uh, you wouldn't actually continue coming back to the app because it's like, well, you know, I could try to have a conversation with my phone and send a text message, but it gets it wrong so often; it's not even worth it. Um, and so that was the core of our retention problem. And then we looked into to voice recognition, and we said, well, like it's going to be really hard to for us to just two engineers be able to improve the quality of the voice recognition. And so we were like, okay, well, like, this doesn't make sense as an idea to work on. Let's go work on something else. And that was, that was a hard moment because all those emotions that I talked about earlier kind of built up uh, in that moment. And, and, you know, we weren't sure if we would be able, you know, it's like, okay, we have one thing that didn't work out and a bunch of side projects even before that, that, you know, were, were pretty hit or miss. And so
0: would we even be able to find something that we would be successful about? I read some of the things that you posted online about this period of learning Uh, where you spent a year just trying to prepare yourself to become a founder and to decide if you really could be a founder. And one of your biggest takeaways, you said, was that almost all successful startups have this point about a year to a year and a half into them, where things look hopeless and the founders should probably have just given up. Was that this point for you guys? Yeah,
1: absolutely. That was probably, uh, that was definitely it. And, And we were lucky in that, you know, I had spent a lot of time reading the stories of startups. And so, you know, we recognize that. You know, okay, we worked on this thing for a year; it didn't work out. That's okay, and we can still find success. And in fact, the path to success will almost certainly have an event like this along the way, and that's okay. We ended up, uh, yeah, taking what we had learned uh, from building analytics, and you know, as we had showed it to a few people, and. They had expressed interests. Uh, they weren't as interested in the voice recognition technology, but they were actually pretty interested in the analytics because they had the same problems in their product where they were really trying to understand, okay, well, what creates a successful product, and how can I understand how my users are interacting with it?" That was a moment for us where we were like, "Hey, you know, I saw a lot of other companies that had gone through the same sort of failure, so the fact, that we didn't have something that worked out, even after a year, was okay. And so if we were willing to stick it out for longer, then you know it'd be pretty likely that we could eventually find some sort of success. And so that was a kind of big uh, turning point for us, saying that, okay, it's okay that light didn't work out. Um, let's go work on the, the, the next thing.
0: Yeah, I think it's so helpful to have that realization before you get to that point as well. Because I think if you end up you know running into this road bump, and then you talk to people, and they're like, oh, don't worry, this happens to everybody... It's it's kind of small comfort versus when you're like preparing for that to be you know something that you run into and it happens and you think okay I was ready for this you know it's just a matter of pushing through you know the admittedly very dark place that you're in and finding the next thing to work on. Cortland, I
1: totally agree with you. I think even outside of startups and a lot of businesses, I see you know even if you're starting kind of like a restaurant. You know, It'll take, it'll take a, a year of no success to actually find, uh, to get to the place where, where you have the potential shot at success later on. And that, that is just kind of the, the
0: barrier to entry um, in my mind. I think it's interesting to think about the sort of dichotomy between, on one hand, starting with the exact product that you want to build and having a very specific mission. And on the other hand, kind of stumbling into a really successful and promising business idea, and then sort of having to grow to actually care about it over time. Do you think you fit more into the latter category, since Amplitude was something that you guys really didn't start off building and you kind of just stumbled upon it?
1: Yeah, absolutely. You know, definitely it was not like super intentional that, uh, you know, it's it's not like we had this grand vision for what products analytics would become from day one. Um, we definitely have come to realize what the real opportunity is and that like, you know, hey, The way people build products today is is pretty messed up, and that there can be a much better way for them to understand how to build a great product, and so that has come to us. But it took us, you know, it's taken us like five years to get there and to figure that out. Uh, And really early on, we actually really focused on mobile analytics. That was the the big focus of the company because we had saw, hey, mobile's growing a lot. The needs of people on mobile are pretty different from the needs. Uh, of the analytics tools that came beforehand. So let's create something custom for that. And that ha- that did not morph into, you know, it definitely, it took a while for that to morph and, and shape into what Amplitude is now. And now we have uh, a vision of where we're going and like, why we have the potential to have this massive impact. But especially at the time, we were just like, hey, this is an immediate problem that we see needs solving. Let's Let's take a stab at it and see where it goes from there.
0: So one of the, the, the interesting challenges with that is at the same time that you're trying to figure out what you want your company to be and what kind of impact that you want to have, you're also trying to solve like the very practical problems of growing and you know hiring. So what were the early days of Amplitude like when it was just you and your co-founder and what kind of concerns were at the top of your mind back then?
1: Yeah, so the, the biggest one that I think that we took away from Sonalite is we didn't spend enough time talking with customers like we did some user research studies where we just like had people use the application and see, you know, what worked and what didn't. But like we didn't really spend time getting to know our customers. We spent probably 95% of our time building and engineering things. And we spent very little time interacting with customers. And so when we started Amplitude, it was like, all right, let's change that and let's flip that. And so let's actually see if we can spend too much time talking to customers. Because everyone says you should talk to customers more. Let's take, let's take that to the extreme you know let, let's see if we can talk to if it's possible for us to talk to customers too much so before we built anything we said okay for the first month let's make the go- let's set ourselves a goal of talking to 30 people who could potentially be customers of the software not build anything not have anything to demo not have any product let's just get out there and talk to people who have this problem and that was huge that like did a bunch of different things one it gave us much more conviction that you know, if we built something, it would be useful. Two, it really helped us understand what was it that frustrated people about existing solutions. I remember back then, the big name in mobile analytics was Flurry. And there were all sorts of issues with Flurry about the data being inaccurate and not being in real time. The sorts of reports that you were able to get out of it being very limited. That it convinced us and it gave us a path to say, hey, we know if we solve these problems that there will be people that will find this useful and be willing to, to pay us money. That was a big change. And so we started off, uh, yeah, just talking to people before building anything. Uh, once we did that, um, you know, we it was an iterative loop for about a year after that where we alternated between uh, talking to, to prospective customers and then we built what they asked and then we gave it to them for free. And then we asked them, okay, well, what would make this really useful to you? So then we went back and we built that. Um, and we just kept doing that over and over again for about a year. We started to get a real understanding of analytics as a problem and how do you scale a system to massive data volumes and how do you really build something that's uh, useful for people. The the one mistake I would say we made is we didn't ask for money early enough. And so we'd end up spending a lot of time building some something for someone when they didn't really value it. And I, so that would be the I think it was it was definitely great that we got out there and, and talked to a lot of prospective customers. But the, the one really big mistake is we didn't ask for some amount of money. You know, you don't have to ask for much, but just some amount of commitment from their end that they value it. You know, even like 50 or or $100 a month, you know, would have been uh, a really big deal. Um, and that would have allowed us to focus in because we spent the one, the one big mistake is I would say we spent a lot of time building for people who didn't really have as much pain as we thought they did they'd say they had the pain but when it came time to like okay well let's actually see how much you're willing to pay to fix this pain well nothing at all okay well we probably shouldn't build for you um let's go spend time talking to other people and i think we were kind of so afraid that like you know nobody would want our product that we weren't willing to to say no uh to people who we should have said no to so that was the one mistake but you know it was uh you know, we probably could have gotten through that, that phase faster if we had gotten in front of that, but it was fine. You know, we ended up, uh, doing this really good loop of, of, uh, you know, building, giving that to more people, taking their feedback and building more and and so on until we had, uh, you know, something valuable as an analytics product.
0: All the insights that you just said are so valuable and so important to have. And it goes back to what I was saying earlier, which is that you can spend a lot of time reading stuff. And I totally advocate, like I'm, Analytical as well. I think you should read things and you should be prepared for what's to come. But there's something about actually doing it. Like it's so easy to hear people say, talk to your customers, and you think, Yeah, 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 that's great advice. And then you don't do it. Or it's so easy to, you know, have retention issues and to hear about retention issues and not really worry about them. But once you've actually experienced those issues, or once you actually experience the benefits of talking to customers, then it's so ingrained into like your soul at that point that you just don't make that mistake again. You become a lot more resistant to it. So I think learning from experience, like this is the part uh, of your story that really shows how valuable that is.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's definitely a lot that we got wrong, you know, in firstly choosing Sonalite as an idea uh, and going through the ups and downs of that. Then, you know, we definitely could have been a lot faster in starting up Amplitude, but there was no real way for us to understand that and internalize that and appreciate that without having to go through that as a failure. You know, if, if you just told me at the time, hey, you should spend fifty percent of your time selling the product and asking money from customers, I you know I wouldn't even have known how to do that. And it was kind of going through the pain of not being able to do that that you know le- eventually led me to like, okay, let me systematic, like let me really step back and s- see what it would take to uh, to fix this as an issue.
0: I think what's also cool is that like you guys are so conscious about understanding where your weaknesses were and sort of almost overcorrecting for them. When I started ND Hackers, for example, I had a very similar situation where I looked at everything I'd done in the past and thought, geez, Cortland, you spend way too much time coding, and you can get so sucked into the coding that you don't do anything else. So I'm only allowing myself to work on an idea that involves very little code so that I won't even be able to fall prey to that problem.
1: No, that, that's absolutely right.
0: Yeah, I, I think just having the ability to look at what you've done wrong in the past, and of course that requires having past failures and experiences, uh, and then you know, having a the discipline to correct for them is, is extremely underrated. One thing you mentioned was that you were going through this loop for about a year, where you would talk to customers and sort of build these things for free uh, and see how they reacted. Were you consciously going through this loop, or was it just something you sort of ended up doing?
1: Oh, absolutely. It was. It was definitely a conscious decision. It was like. So the thing about great engineers is, is that if you're an engineer, like your natural instinct is to solve a problem. And so if someone says, "Hey, I have a problem doing this," you're just always like, "Hey, I can fix that for you. Let me." let me build something that that can help solve that. And so that part is easy and all you have to do as an engineer to add on to that is like okay, well go talk to customers. Um the only asterisk I would add have added in this case is ask them for money as well. You don't have to ask them for a lot, but just ask them for something and like, you know, just alternate between those two things. And if you keep doing those two core things really well, if you, you know, Understand what people's problems are, and then build something to solve them. And you do both of those things really well. Then, like, yeah, that is the core like motion of success for for any you know software business. Anything else that you know people think is starting a company doesn't really matter. You know, you don't really need to market yourself. Uh, you don't need to have like a a great product strategy or you know the perfect messaging or you know hey like i need to sort out all these things on on my finances like it's like no 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 all you got to do is build the product sell it build it sell it build it sell it like that's it like that's the core
0: when you're very very
1: early on that's the core motion that will lead to to building a successful
0: company it's such like a simple model for an, an engine that will run your company and i think it'll appeal to a lot of developers out there who don't necessarily want to spend a lot of time doing other things that might end up being unnecessary for them to learn
1: yeah if you're an engineer the only thing is get in front of customers and then if you can't ask them for money i definitely wish i had but at least getting in front of customers is a million times better than not
0: so how were you guys funding yourselves during this entire period of exploration and building were you still living off of the the money that you got from yc the year before or did you guys raise additional funding we, we we raised a tiny amount of additional, like it was it
1: was not much. It was like 70K of additional funding. So we, Curtis and I were lucky in that we had saved up a bunch of money from the year. He was at Google for a year and I was in finance for a year and I had managed to save up some. We both managed to save up some money from from those experiences. And so we were able to, to, to live on that plus the money that YC had given us. Uh, in fact, we didn't even pay ourselves salaries for about... Uh, the first two or three years. I can't even remember. It was like two or three years before we even started paying ourselves anything. And it wasn't even that much when we got to that point. So we had just, we had just, you know, saved up the money from the, the jobs that we have. And both Curtis and I were relatively frugal people. You know, we were just very cheap on the apartment and, you know, on our lifestyles and, you know, on everything that, uh, and we were very both also lucky not to have any debt from student loans or anything else. And so as long as we didn't spend, you know, a lot of money, uh, we could sustain ourselves just based on what we had saved up.
0: Yeah, that's such an important thing to do because you just give yourself a bunch of extra chances to succeed that you wouldn't otherwise have if you were eating through money so fast that you had to, you know, quit in six months or three months.
1: That would be my one, one piece of advice for you know, if anyone feels really passionate about starting a company and wants to do it, I would say do it. The one exception I would say that you know you sh- you should probably strongly consider not doing it is if. You have a lot of debt for whatever reason, or you just you don't have. You're not able to 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 live. Um, you know, you have debt or bills or whatever else you have to pay off, and so that that's kind of the one exception I'd say to of the rule of you know start a company if you want to start a company.
0: That's one of the cool things about being a programmer too, and why a lot of programmers end up becoming tech founders. You know, in addition to the obvious reasons, because if things don't work out, you know you've got a solid skill set that you can always kind of fall back to.
1: Absolutely. Yeah, especially as an engineer, like yeah, absolutely. You you don't have anything to to you you have no reason to worry about like not being able to to find a job or find opportunity.
0: So one of the cool things I think about your story and the success that you've had with Amplitude is that analytics is an extremely crowded space. I mean, you mentioned this earlier that, you know, it seems like there's new analytics tools popping up all the time. And even on this podcast, I've talked to Josh Pickford at Bear Metrics, I've talked to the guys behind Segment, Dr. David darmanin at Hotjar, and you at Amplitude. And you guys are all doing extremely well despite kind of the fierce competition. Uh, why do you think that is? And, and how worried were you about your competitors early on when you were first starting? So we're not. Uh, I mean we're always paying attention
1: and, and all of that, but you know, for us it's like as long as we're solving problems for our customers, then, you know, you don't really have anything to worry about for competition. Stepping back, I think one of the mistakes people make is, you know, they use pre-existing terms to kind of bucket everything into a market. So there's a, you know, people think of it as a market for analytics, but that's actually a really deceiving way to, to looking at what's going on because analytics is just a tool to help you accomplish something else. No one gets out of bed super excited to work on analytics for the sake of analytics, once you start thinking about okay well how is the analytics used and why is it used there's actually very few people that we compete directly with so within the realm of product analytics you know when you think about helping product teams build a better product you know we think of it you know while there are hundreds of companies in analytics you know we think of ourselves as the only one or one of the only ones out there that does product analytics and so while, yeah, analytics is like there's hundreds of companies within, you know, for the sol- solving the problem of the product team, there's very, very few. And so if you can understand that, like, hey, I'm solving this person's problem in this very specific way um, that other folks are not and, you know, they, they're coming to me because I'm the best thing for them, then, you know, it's not really like, uh, you know, yeah, you just don't worry about the competition. It's kind of like I, I think of Slack, you know, and Slack is a great example of this. You know, if you think about messaging tools, there are you know hundreds or thousands or probably even more than that of messaging tools and applications out there. Whether it's email, uh, text message, or uh, or things like WhatsApp or you know chat uh, chat applications or you know HipChat with uh, from Atlassian. you know there, there are there are hundreds or thousands of messaging tools out there. But that's not the problem that Slack so- solves. Slack is really focused on helping teams collaborate better and they think that you know that problem hasn't been solved and as a result they've found uh, a niche within that for themselves that they've been the best at and the most successful at. And so in the same way we found product analytics for ourselves and you know we've been we felt we feel we've been the most successful at that. And so as long as looking at it in terms of oh what's the market like that doesn't make any sense at all think about okay well what problem am i solving for who and like am i yeah am i is there a group of people out there who i can solve a problem for and as long as there is like yeah you don't have to worry about competition or anything else just whether you can solve that problem for that group of users
0: i think that's such a good way to look at it and if, you know there's so many early stage founders who who are motivated and excited to start something new but they're not sure what to work on and I think the default thing is for people to say, okay, well, let me look at something that doesn't exist at all. I need to do something that's completely unique and unheard of. Whereas when you look at companies that are more successful, a lot of them do fall into these buckets where it seems like they have a ton of competitors. And it seems like they're not all that unique, but they're actually providing a lot of value to specific people.
1: Yeah, the, the mistake is that you're looking at it, I, and we, we had this with Sonolite as like, hey, I have to do something totally new and novel. And the way to look at it is instead is like, hey, I have to solve a problem for someone that is not solved for them right now. If you look at it from that perspective, then yeah, man, people's wants, Cortland, people's wants are unlimited. Like humans will always want more stuff. And so as long as you, you know, have something that they,
0: as long as you can solve a problem that they have that
1: hasn't been solved for them that yet, then you're in great shape.
0: Yeah. And it kind of goes back to the the story you told about the guy who kind of revolutionized farming and helped so many people. I mean, farming wasn't exactly new. It wasn't like he was inventing something that no one had ever even conceived of before. He was taking things that worked in one place and, and bringing them to other people who want something similar. Exactly. He solved the problem of, hey, we
1: don't have enough food and food production within the developing world. That's the problem he solved. And you know, a lot of the farming techniques he used in terms of creating uh, crops that were high-yield and robust and uh, you know, disease-resistant had already existed with the United States and, and Western Europe and a few other places, but he was taking those solutions to places that hadn't solved that problem yet. So As long as you're solving a problem
0: for somebody somewhere, that's all that matters. So let's talk about analytics for a little bit. And I know you're biased because obviously you run Amplitude, but what's your philosophy on how people should use analytics tools and get the most out of them, especially early stage companies who might not you know, be in a place where they have a product that's even worth making incremental improvements to?
1: So I'd say the first thing is, before we even talk about analytics or anything else, The first thing is, make sure you're talking to your customers. And that's even something that we still do today here at Amplitude. If you look at how our own product team spends its time, they actually spend way more time talking and interfacing uh, with our customers and prospective customers than they do in analytics. We still we definitely use analytics quite a bit internally, but we spend even more time talking with customers. So if you're going to choose only one thing to do when you're early on, Talk with and interface with your customers.
0: And I just want to interrupt here for a second to let people know because I know we keep saying talk to customers, but for some people it's not obvious why uh, you need to do that. You know, and my take has always been that well, as a founder or a creator or a product person, you don't know exactly what people find valuable, and it's very difficult for you on your own to just sort of magically come up with all of the answers, right? And so when you talk to people, you're actually learning what they value. And so you prevent yourself from spending months or years headed in the wrong direction because you're focused on building your hypothesis for what it is that your customers want, as opposed to the reality of what they want.
1: Yeah, the, the key, this, I'm Cortland, I'm glad you said that, because this is actually really important for, for those listening and who are wondering why, you know, people keep saying talk to your customers. The really important thing to understand the difference between when you're at another job or you know whether you're, when you're at school you know doing pro, you know working on things is that in the world of of startups and you know business the problems are not well defined and so defining the right problem is a job and super important in itself and we have the saying here at amplitude which is that product's job is not actually to come up with a solution product's job is to define the right problem and so Recognizing that that's a hard thing in itself, defining the right problem. I think the the false expectation that a lot of people have is that that hey, they're going to hand it you know the ideal problem down from the heavens and like the perfect definition and know exactly what it is to build you know perfectly uh, for all things. But the reality is, you don't you don't know at all. You don't know what problem you should solve, and viewing that as like a hey. It's, it's, it's actually, you're never going to know perfectly what problem to solve. And so viewing that as a thing you always have to invest in, just like, hey, you always have to continue to improve your product and ship more code and, and make improvements. It's like you always have to update your understanding of the problem and really invest behind that as a thing in itself. Just knowing the right problem to solve is like massively valuable and like basically avoids all the situations you were talking about. You know, if you don't know what the right problem to solve is, it's like you solved an incredibly hard math problem, but for a test that just didn't matter, or like, you know, there wasn't even a test around it, or like you don't get credit for it. So you only get credit for solving problems that people actually have, and those are unknown by default. You just don't know what they are. And so viewing things as, hey, I always need to spend time updating my understanding and definition of the problem I'm solving, uh, as like a task in itself is super important. And I would say spend half your time doing, that's what talking to customers is. Um, that's what sales is. Sales is uncovering the problem of the person you're talking to. You don't know that by default. And so spending, you know, I, I would view it split your time between the, two. it sounds crazy to spend half your time defining the problem, but that's actually how you should think about it. Spend 50% of your time talking to customers and defining to update your understanding of the problem and define the right problem and spend 50% of your time solving it. Because the worst is you define a crappy problem that nobody needs to solve and you spend 95% of your time spending the wrong problem. So that would be the challenge I have to anyone who's starting a company uh, from an engineering background is to spend half their time defining and understanding the problem they're solving.
0: I think that's such a great way to look at it. And I liked that you mentioned sort of the misleading experience that you get by being an employee at a bigger company or being a student. where Yeah, you're you're handed problems. You're handed well-defined problems. Exactly. You're handed these well-defined problems, and there's this entire layer that exists between you, the programmer, who's implementing the solution, and the people who are actually talking to customers and understanding what problems customers have. And it's easy to fool yourself into thinking that you understand that. Exactly. That's exactly right. So first of all, companies need to understand uh, their customers and talk to their customers. But what else can to get out of, out of analytics tools? Because I think the most common thing that I hear from founders, especially the founders of early stage companies, is that they set up their Google Analytics, they set up Segment, they set up Amplitude, they set up whatever tool they're using, Mixpanel, and then they don't know what questions to ask. Or they kind of just look at the metrics and they don't really change how they're building their companies. Is there such a thing as being too early stage for analytics or are they just using the tools wrong? I'd say if you're already talking to customers and you have
1: a few thousand users or more, like on a a daily or or weekly or monthly basis, then that's the right time for you to start start using analytics. If you're earlier than that, if you only have a few hundred users, or if you're not talking to your customers yet, don't use analytics. So that's, uh, even as an analytic, you know, this is coming from an analytics CEO. So uh, you know that uh, even with my biases, that's what I'd say. Um, So that's the first thing. Now, once you get beyond a few thousand users, It becomes very impractical to interface and interact and talk with them all directly. And so that's where analytics comes in. and is very, very powerful. The way I'd look at it is if you don't know what to track or how to track it or how to think about it, the first thing you want to do is focus on your attention. A lot of people focus instead on their daily active users, but the problem is that's the output. The input to that is your product and how good your product is. And the best measure of that is the retention of your customer base. And so, someone basically, someone's the way to view your users is someone has taken a lot of time and gone out of their way and out of all the things in the universe, they landed on your thing and they found your thing to solve their problem or what they think solves their problem. And they started trying it out and your ability to retain people, to convince those people that you can solve their problems and they keep coming back is the best indicator of whether you have you, you're actually building a good product and solving people's problems. And so the first thing I would focus on once you get to the stage where you can actually start thinking about analytics is understanding whether your users are coming back and retaining. And if they're not, if very few of your users are, then that's a problem. I the standard the benchmarks vary by industry and are all over the place on this one, but the the if you want a very simple baseline, the standard baseline is that I use with folks is that um, after the first day, so after using it for a day, and then forty percent of users should come back the next day of your new users, and then ten percent of those should still be around by day seven. So if you're hitting those benchmarks, then you probably have a good then you have a good product. But if you're below those, then you should. Be much more introspective and ask yourself, why is it that people are not coming back enough? What is it? And spend you know spend time uh, understanding that. Now, from an analytics, pr- there's a bunch of ways to understand that from an analytics perspective. With amplitude, what you'd want to look at is what is it that people who retain have in common, and what is it people that people who don't retain have in common. So typically, what you'll find is you'll you want to look at uh, what features people use, and you want to look at what features that people who retain use versus those who don't retain. And that will tell you the difference. That will tell you, hey, these features are really valuable. And I should emphasize them in my product. And these features are really not. Uh, So a quick example of that is there was this uh, mobile app named Calm, one of our customers, uh, who uh, was an early stage startup. They've since grown quite a bit. And they wanted to understand this exact same thing. They wanted to understand, how can I improve my retention? Uh, They looked at a bunch of different features that people used. And they found a really interesting feature. They found this one feature that if you used it, you were three times as likely to retain long term as if you didn't, you know, as, as, as if you didn't use it or if, if uh, for the baseline. But the interesting thing is only 1% of their user base actually use the feature. And what the feature was, it was a reminder. So Calm is a meditation app that helps you achieve mindfulness and it walks you through a bunch of meditation sessions. And the feature that these highly retained users used was a reminder to meditate at the right time. And the really interesting thing is that they had buried this behind three or four different screens within the application. And when they saw that data, they realized that like, hey, this reminding people to meditate at the right time is actually as important, if not more important than the entire rest of the application that actually guides you through meditation. So... They took that feature, they brought it to the front of their application, and as a result, they massively increased their retention. And that was huge, because they, they created a better product from understanding what features were really valuable uh, to people. So that's a really small example of the process of how uh, to go about uh, using
0: analytics and product analytics to, to create a better product. I'm really curious about those numbers that you got, 40% retention by day two and 10% by day seven. Did those numbers come out of your personal history building products, or is it something that you've noticed and analyzed, and working with Amplitude customers and trying to help them?
1: It's actually been around since before Amplitude has existed. This is this this came from the game in gaming industry, which is a pioneer uh, with it has been a pioneer with analytics. If you look at something some of the stuff that say Zynga did, uh, you know, in two thousand eleven or two thousand twelve, um, they were very much thinking about all these different things and. It's been since reinforced by a lot of what we've seen uh, with the products that we work with. And if that, you know, you have less retention than that, you really want to focus on increasing that and nothing else. Um, but if you have more than that, you know, that's when other things can become higher priorities. So, yeah, that, that's just that's kind of like one of these analytics industry standard benchmarks that, uh, you know,
0: we've seen and we have found to be true. So we're running uh, kind of toward the end. I've got a couple more questions for you if you've got time. One of the first is that I saw an interesting talk last year by Gail Goodman, uh, who runs this company called Constant Contact. And her talk was the long, slow SaaS ramp of death. And she was basically talking about how at her company, they constantly had to find new growth channels. Because whenever one started working too well, they would eventually sort of exhaust it and hit the point of diminishing returns. Has that been true of you guys at Amplitude? Because you guys have grown so much. I mean, the number of products you have sending you data and employees you have at your company, you have to imagine that you've been through several stages or has it been just kind of one smooth uninterrupted path of growth for you guys
1: it, it definitely has
0: been where we've had to find new growth channels I think
1: one, one of the things is that like we're less sophisticated than you might think at finding channels for us to grow um, and we're still that's still something we're trying to understand so we've had really good success um, with two things in particular um, over the last year or two uh, one of them is just reaching out directly to folks. Um, so reaching out to folks who have product analytics as a problem and just sending them an email and just saying, hey, like, you know, I, are you having any of these issues? You know, if so we'd love to talk more. Um, and then the other one that we found to, to be helpful is uh, what we call uh, product analytics summits, where we just where we spend a bunch of time hosting event that teaches people the basics about product analytics and what product analytics is and, and some examples of how to do it. Um, so those have been the, the two that have been uh, most successful for us in, in recent history I definitely think it's something that you know I'm not an expert at I think uh, you know I'm you know I, I came from the, the you know build and sell that, that those are the two things that, that I know how to do really well and so that's something that um, we're, we're still developing uh, our good ability to do but it's ab- absolutely true that you know the thing the way that you get, you know, your first ten customers can be pretty different from the way that you get the next hundred, from the next thousand, and
0: so on. I think it's it's uh, especially as you get bigger. There's no playbook for exactly how you're going to grow your particular company and acquire the users that you want. And you always have to sort of be experimenting and trying new things.
1: Actually, one of the, the one of the comments I do want to
0: say on this is, I think you know, one of the funny things is.
1: I don't know if you know Dropbox has this referral program where if you refer someone, you get more space. I don't know if you're familiar with that. Yeah, Cortland. it's
0: super famous. Everyone tried yeah, to emulate so, it for
1: years. Every, yeah, exactly. So everyone's tried to emulate that. And I don't think I've heard of a single other instance where that has worked. And my big takeaway, like I remember it like, yes, there was. I was at a, a panel of Y Combinator founders a few months back and everyone had said how, you know, people asked the question that you did, And we're about, you know, what channels are successful and everyone said, Hey, they've tried out the Dropbox referral program and it didn't work for their product. And my takeaway for that was that the way that you reach your audience is just so different by industry. It's almost, it's good to know what other people do, but it's, it's impossible to just take what has worked for another company and, and customer and user base and apply it to your company. And so you just need to figure out, okay, what are effective ways to get in front of people who have the problem that I solve? And that's very, very different. Um, the channels that you're going to use on that are very, very different. So don't
0: try to be Dropbox. You know, don't try to be Amplitude. Just try to be you. Sage advice, be you. I usually end these episodes by asking uh, you to give advice to early stage founders, but I think you've given a ton of advice. So let's do something different here. And I'll ask you to tell me a story, but not a real story. Uh, what I want you to do is pretend that you are Spencer Skates, but the ideal version of yourself ten years from now in 2027. Uh, what is your life like? Ooh, that's a really hard one. <laughs> You've got two minutes. You know, go. <laughs> it's
1: it's think. Well, that's that's an interesting question to think about what things are like ten years ago, and that's something I care a lot about getting right. It's it's, it's so hard to look out. You know, I can barely tell you what's going to happen next year. Uh, never mind, you know, a few years out, never mind 10 years. What I mean
0: is who do you Um, want to be in 10 years?
1: I I would say in terms of who I want to be, you know, I love this amplitude to go on, uh, to continue to be successful. We continue to grow. We continue to solve this problem uh, of helping people build better products. And, you know, I think there are a lot of really interesting things way beyond analytics that can help people build better products that we have the potential to do and we have an opportunity to do if we're successful. So I would love for us to get the opportunity to tackle some of those Oh, I think we got to get the product analytics problem solved first. So I think, yeah, if, if Amplitude continues to grow, uh, you know, hey, I I, I want to, yeah, no matter, well, no matter what happens to Amplitude, it would be awesome if 10 years from now I could, you know, we could Amplitude and and me as a part of it could, could still be around and we're still successfully helping other companies build. But, you know, if I do nothing else in my life but help companies build better products, I think that's awesome. I would say I definitely don't know a lot. You know, there's a lot of... There are a few things I know for sure that about myself in 10 years and what I'm going to be like, like, you know, I know, um, I'm going to really care about, you know, making the world a better place and, and helping other people. I know that that will probably still be true. I know I'll, I'll still be, uh, motivated. Um, other than that, you know, it's really hard to say, uh, you know, it's really hard to understand what I'm going to be like in, in 10 years and what the Spencer of then 2027 is, is going to want. Um, But, you know, at least I'm hopeful that if I can continue uh, making Amplitude a success and making everyone here
0: at Amplitude a success and making all our customers successful, um, that would be awesome. Well, I wish you the best of luck and I hope you continue to make your customers successful. Can you tell listeners where they can go to learn more about you personally and about the things that you're working on at Amplitude?
1: Yeah, so um, me personally, that's a good question. I've done some AMAs in the past. So if you just Google me, uh, you know, there's. I, I think I did one uh, with the product community a few months back. Um, uh, if you just want to learn more about product analytics, we have a ton on our website at amplitude.com. I'm always super happy to help out folks in the early stage. So feel free to reach out to me direct. I'm happy to provide more perspective and advice. And that's one of the things I definitely owe to the community because there are a lot of folks that help me. Uh, when I was early stage. So I'm always more than happy to help out folks. Feel free to, to send me a note directly at spencer@amplitude.com at as well.
0: All right. Thanks so much for coming on the show, Spencer.
1: Absolutely, Cortland. It was really, I really appreciate, um, you know, talking to you. I love what you're doing with indie hackers. I'm glad that, you know, there are just more resources today for folks at the really early stage. And, you know, feel super happy
0: to be a part of that. If you enjoyed listening to this conversation and you want a really easy way to support the podcast, why don't you head over to iTunes and leave us a quick rating or even a review. If you're looking for an easy way to get there, just go to ndhackers.com review, and that should open up iTunes on your computer. I read pretty much all the reviews that you guys leave over there, and they really help other people to discover the show, so thanks a ton for your support. In addition, if you are running an internet business, or if it's something that you'd like to do in the future, you should join me and a whole bunch of other founders on the ndhackers.com forum. It's a great place to get help with pretty much any problem that you might encounter while growing your business, like how to come up with an idea or feedback on a product that you're working on. I try to spend a couple hours a day just answering questions and giving people feedback and getting to know everyone, so I really hope to see you there. That's ndhackers.com forum. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time.